0: Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin, and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.CanadaEHX.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language,
1: adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for
0: everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On May 2nd, 1986, standing in front of a crowd made up of 54,000 invited guests and 7,200 performers at BC Place in Vancouver, a regal gentleman said, I bring you the greetings of Her Majesty the Queen, who sends her very best wishes to her Canadian subjects. As the crowd waited, he concluded with, So ladies and gentlemen, together with my wife, we have the greatest pleasure in declaring Expo 86 officially open. With that, the crowd cheered as seven years of planning and construction came to an end. It was the first time Vancouver welcomed the world, but certainly would not be the last. For the next 164 days, 20,111,578 people came through the gates of Expo 86, including one six-year-old boy, who had traveled in a motorhome with his family from Kamloops and was visiting Vancouver for the first time. I was that boy. I'm Craig Baird. And this is Canadian History X. In early 1886, on the traditional land of the indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest Coast, a community sprang up where the Canadian Pacific Railway reached the Pacific Ocean. Originally, the terminus was named Granville, but there was a worry over being associated with the seedy nearby area of Gastown. A new name was then suggested by CPR president William Van Horn. He chose Vancouver, believing that no one in Toronto or Montreal knew where Granville was, but they knew Vancouver Island, which had been named for Captain George Vancouver, who had come to the area in 1792. The name change gave the new community on the Lower Mainland instant name recognition, and the rebrand was so highly successful that within a month, hundreds had already moved to the community. On April 6, 1886, the city of Vancouver was incorporated. Two months later, the entire city burned to the ground within 25 minutes, leaving 21 dead. You'll remember I covered that terrible event on my episode, The Great Vancouver Fire. For the next century, Vancouver grew to become one of the most important cities in Canada. By the time the late 1970s rolled around, the city was being noticed internationally. The NHL added the Vancouver Canucks in 1970 and the beachcombers were showing viewers all over the world the unique natural beauty of the area. And while Vancouver was gaining recognition, Eastern Canada was the preferred location when it came to major events. The first Canadian World's Fair had been held in Montreal in 1967, followed by the Summer Olympics in that same city in 1976. The only major sport competition Vancouver had seen over the previous two decades was the 1954 British Empire and Commonwealth Games, and that was a relatively small affair with only 24 nations and 662 competitors. Knowing that the Vancouver Centennial was approaching, then-BC Minister for Recreation and Conservation, Sam Balf, put forward a proposal for Vancouver to host a World's Fair to celebrate that 100-year anniversary. The idea gained traction, and in June 1979, a formal application for a World's Fair called Transpo 86 was submitted to the Bureau International d'Exposition de in Paris. In November 1980, the plan was approved, and work began on the biggest event Vancouver had ever hosted to that point. World's Fairs first appeared in 1791 in Prague, where the first World's Fair was held to celebrate the coronation of Leopold II as the King of Bohemia. Other countries began to see World's Fairs as opportunities to highlight the accomplishments of the nation and gain prestige. World's Fairs became a regular event after Paris in 1847, with London, New York, Philadelphia, Barcelona, and Chicago all hosting a fair by the end of the century. It was for the fair in Paris in 1889 that the Eiffel Tower was built, and in Chicago, the latest inventions were showcased, including the first movie camera, searchlights, switchboards, and induction motors. Prior to the growth of the Olympics as a showcase for a country, nothing was bigger than a World's Fair. This would be the second World's Fair held in Canada, the third held in the Pacific Northwest of North America, and to date, the last to be held on the continent. With the name Transpo 86, Organizers felt it gave the image of a trade fair for transportation, rather than a world's fair. And in order to eliminate the association, the name Expo 86 was chosen. This not only created a simple brand, but it also connected it with Canada's last world's fair, the highly successful Expo 67. And almost from the beginning, Expo 86 was compared to Expo 67 in Montreal. Held during Canada's centennial year in 1967, the Montreal Expo became a landmark moment in Canadian history and became one of the most successful world's fairs of the 20th century. Its legacy is remembered warmly by the 50 million people that visited Expo 67 at a time when Canada's population was only 20 million. I covered the fascinating history of Expo 67 earlier this year on the podcast, so be sure to check it out. Meanwhile, at Expo 86... For organizers, they were constantly compared to the Montreal event, and this left them feeling like they were overshadowed by their more famous and successful older brother. But the theme for Expo 86 would be, World in Motion, World in Touch. And the theme was shown in the logo, which featured three concentric circles using the figures 8 and 6, intersecting to represent transportation by land, sea, and air. Three years after Vancouver was officially awarded the fair, construction began in October 1983 at False Creek when Queen Elizabeth II started a concrete mixer on the site of what would become the Canada Pavilion. False Creek was first named by Sir George Henry Richards, who was with the Royal Navy, and he was conducting a survey of the Lower Mainland from 1856 to 1863. And while travelling along the south side of Barard Inlet, Richards believed he had traversed a creek, Upon realizing his error, he named the inlet False Creek. Now, construction may have technically started on the day the Queen started the cement mixer in 1983, but due to a labor dispute, all progress was halted for five months. When construction eventually began, 10,000 people were employed, and it helped reverse the recession that British Columbia was in. Throughout Expo 86 itself, over 80,000 people were employed, and it reduced the entire unemployment rate of British Columbia by 2% from 1984 to 1986. Now, the groundbreaking of BC Place had taken place in April 1981. Two years later, it opened to the public. And it was here that the opening ceremonies of Expo 86 would be held. From that day onwards, BC Place has been a part of all major sporting events and concert events in the city, including the opening ceremonies of the 2010 Winter Olympics. As opening day in 1986 approached, Expo organizers hoped that 20 countries would sign on. By 1985, 33 countries pledged to participate, exceeding all expectations. Those countries would be featured along with 6 Canadian provinces, 2 US states and 14 corporations. Now, while unemployment was down and Vancouver was ready to step onto the spotlight, onto the international stage, there was a dark side to Expo 86.
1: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest waterslide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You repel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation, this is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
0: It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Similar to what we saw two decades later in the lead-up to the Winter Olympics, a swath of evictions hit Vancouver. Buildings were brought down, only to be replaced with newer, more expensive hotels and apartments. The area that was most affected was the downtown east side. The downtown East Side had begun the 20th century as the political, retail, and cultural center of Vancouver. That's where you could find City Hall, the courthouse, banks, and the Carnegie Library. Within it, there was also Japantown, but after Japanese Canadians were forced into internment camps during the Second World War, the glimmer to downtown East Side was lost forever. As the city shifted westward, the area became poor and known for crime, drug abuse, and homelessness. Leading up to Expo '86, the city began to clamp down on crime in areas of the city where tourists were likely to visit, and as a result, crime began to shift towards downtown East Side. In that community, over 1,000 low-income residents living long-term in single-occupancy hotels were evicted from the downtown East Side.
1: The Patricia Hotel isn't the only one evicting tenants. A dozen other hotels, rooming houses, and apartment buildings are cashing in on Expo. But most owners don't want to talk about the evictions. They're not eviction notices, man. Those are words that you people choose.
0: Have you looked for a place yet? Well, I did a little bit, but I can't run around too much.
1: A neighborhood activist group, the Downtown Eastside Residents Association, is trying to find new homes for 200 evictees like Gerard. There could be 800 more by the time the fair gets underway in less than two months.
0: Many were only given a day's notice, and because they lived in hotels rather than apartment buildings, they were not protected by rental laws. Olaf Solheim was one of those people. He had lived at the Patricia Hotel for decades. He was only given one week's notice before being evicted. And although he found a new home, he became depressed, stopped eating, and was dead within a month of his eviction. Speaking about his death, Vancouver's chief medical officer, John Batherwick said, He'd been moved from where he was to a place he didn't want to be, and he simply lost his will to live, and he died. Mayor Mike Harcourt said he hoped provincial laws would be changed to protect residents, but the government refused to amend the British Columbia Innkeepers Act. Expo 86 had an initial budget of 78 million, but by the time opening day arrived, expenditures had reached 802 million. And despite being 10 times over budget, it was clear the event was going to be a major success. By opening day, nearly every hotel in the city was booked from June until August, as these were the biggest months for Expo. Most Canadians and international visitors made the trip during the summer holidays with their children. Many visitors would travel up to 90 minutes from their hotel to get to Expo. Then on May 2nd, 1986, it officially opened to the public and Expo 86 kicked off with a lot of people waiting in lines. They let the people into the fair long before the official opening this afternoon. In spite of the wet, cold weather, several thousand came out to try it again into early morning lineups. And there were lineups at the Soviet pavilion, at the Australian pavilion.
1: Welcome to the Great Hall of Ramsey's Two.
0: Within an hour, there was already another hour's wait to get into the Great Hall of Ramsey's Two. Because I thought I could get to see this the opening day. I, uh, there'd be a lot of lineups from this time on. So. There's lineups already. Yeah, but this, is, this isn't as bad as it's going to be. Over the course of Expo 86, visitors could explore 54 pavilions built by nations, provinces, and corporations. Alberta, BC, Quebec, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nova Scotia, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, and Saskatchewan all had pavilions. Countries from across the planet also built pavilions including Australia, Belgium, Costa Rica, China, the Soviet Union, the United States, Cuba, France, West Germany, Japan, Norway, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Switzerland, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. Now the Switzerland pavilion, that sticks out for me personally, as I have a very clear memory of the giant wristwatch built as part of the pavilion. As well, Air Canada, CN Rail, Via Rail, Canadian Pacific, Telecom Canada, and General Motors all had pavilions. And if all of those pavilions weren't enough, there was also the Great Hall of Ramesses II, the 1880s era railway roundhouse filled with steam locomotives, and an exhibit of great Norwegian explorers. Now, both the Soviet Union and the United States chose ill-timed themes for their pavilions for Expo 86. The United States focused on the country's space industry, but it opened only a few months after the January 28, 1986 Challenger disaster that killed all seven crew members 73 seconds after it launched from Florida. And the Soviet Union's pavilion celebrated its space industry and the nuclear industry and one week before Expo 86 opened, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster occurred in what is now Ukraine. The disaster was caused when a routine shutdown of a nuclear reactor was conducted. A design flaw resulted in the rupture of fuel channels, leading to an eventual nuclear meltdown at the facility. The disaster killed less than 100 people initially, but it's believed the long-term effects killed upwards of 16,000 to 60,000 people in Europe. As for its space industry, there was a huge statue of the world's first person in space, Yuri Gagarin, with his arms outstretched, towering over the entrance to the pavilion. Other pavilions at Expo 86 were wonders of engineering at the time. The Japan Pavilion featured a detailed 10,000 square foot model with 5,000 moving pieces of a coastal city of the future. The Czechoslovakia Pavilion featured an audiovisual symphony that blended the old and the new of the nation through technology and aesthetics. And the pavilion for Ramesses II, it had 67 artifacts dating from 1290 to 1224 BC. And for it to be featured in Vancouver, a $35 million insurance policy against theft and damage was placed on items in that pavilion. Canada's pavilion was one of the largest ever built by Canada for a World's Fair. It featured 120,000 square feet of space and cost $280 million. Designed to be sleek like a luxury liner with a roofline that featured five towering sails, visitors were treated to comedy sketches, a circus, and other performances in the Great Hall. The wondrous New Worlds exhibit in the pavilion featured a vision of Canada in four dimensions. Space, the atmosphere, undersea, and the Arctic. Within the Celebration Theatre, patriotic films played almost constantly. On one wall, 108 stacked monitors created the largest ever designed audiovisual presentation to that point, projecting images of sailing, flying, and blasting into space. But one of the favorite exhibits for visitors to the Canada Pavilion was the robotic arm that folded paper airplanes and launched them into the air. Saskatchewan Pavilion was a 10-story tall, mirrored grain elevator, which proved to be one of the most striking architectural sites at the expo, especially as the sun shined off of it. Visitors to the pavilion were whisked to the top to get a panoramic view of the expo grounds. The ride down simulated, using monitors, the descent into a potash mine deep below the surface. And the latest in technology was showcased at Expo 86, and General Motors' Spirit Lodge used a holographic effect to create a First Nations elder, speaking about freedom of movement. Highway 86 was a massive sculpture by James Wines. He's an artist and architect who specialized in environmental design, Since 1969, he had lectured in dozens of countries on green topics, and over his career, he has designed more than 150 projects in 11 countries, including his Expo 86 exhibit, Highway 86. It comprised 200 real vehicles frozen in time and space on a roadway that visitors could walk on. Another memory I have of visiting Expo 86 was of those vehicles, ranging from bicycles, motorcycles, planes, and vehicles painted in silver, frozen in time. This artwork was 40 feet wide and 700 feet long, spanning the entire expo site. James said his art installation was a double-edged piece. It raises the prospect of technology out of control. And with so many pavilions, most people couldn't see everything that Expo 86 had to offer in one visit. But to get around the expo, a 5.4 kilometer monorail provided a 20-minute trip around the grounds. Over 10 million people rode the monorail, while 9.75 million took rides on the gondolas. In the end, the most popular pavilion, according to exit surveys by visitors, was the Soviet Union's, followed by China's, and the British Columbia Pavilion. Overall, despite having mock-ups of the Voyager and Mercury spacecrafts, most visitors were not impressed with the United States Pavilion at all. Although it was filled with wonder and merriment, the expo was not without incident. Only days after the fair was opened by her husband, Prince Charles, Princess Diana collapsed. Officials had been explaining the details behind a computerized bicycle design at the California Pavilion when it happened. Reporters were quickly ushered out of the pavilion, while an ambulance and the Royal Doctor were called. Twenty minutes later, Diana was walking out to a waiting motorcade as the crowd cheered. The fainting spell naturally made headlines around the world, as many speculated if the princess was pregnant. But it was later revealed by Diana that at the time she fainted, she was battling with bulimia, an eating disorder. Then on May 9th, tragedy struck when nine-year-old Karen Ford from Nanaimo was killed in the Canadian Pavilion. She was crushed by a revolving turntable that connected two semicircular theaters in the pavilion. These theaters allowed spectators to lean on a padded support to watch one film And then the circular platform rotated 180 degrees to allow visitors to view the second presentation in the adjoining theater. During the presentations, a fixed wall descends from the ceiling on each side of the rotating platform to screen out noise. Tragically, Ford was standing at the perimeter of the turntable when it rotated, and she became caught on the rotating turntable and the wall as it was lowered. Expo officials called it a freak accident, but a coroner's jury deemed it a homicide due to the poor safety measures being in place. The revolving table would be shut down for some time before it reopened the first week of June with new safety measures, including an automatic shut-off device. Karen's family sued Expo and the companies that designed the theater, and the family was offered $100,000 to settle, but they refused, calling it a slap on the wrist for the mistakes that killed their daughter. But that wasn't the only controversy to befall the Expo. Sammy the sea lion was a wild seal named by expo employees when his antics off the fair's waterfront drew the attention and adoration of millions of expo visitors. He emerged one day from False Creek to sun himself on a boom boat and was immediately a fan favorite. Unfortunately, an SPCA official shot the 600 pound sea lion after receiving reports that he was sick and about to die. It was called a mercy killing, but resulted in a huge public outcry and led to the suspension of the official and a government investigation into the matter. On September 16, 1986, an 11-page report was issued, and it found there was no clear areas of responsibility for the care or disposal of sea lions, sick or healthy. The Vancouver SBCA would apologize for the incident, and the official, Bob Gordon, took full responsibility, and would return to work on September 15th. The entire incident was not easy for him, as he had worked for the SBCA since he was 8, and was an animal lover who rescued ring-necked doves, dwarf rabbits, and a box turtle he named Rochester. And after the initial outcry, Gordon was commended by the media for never shying away from the controversy or the public. One of the lasting legacies from Expo was the Sky Train. The first line was built to partially help transport visitors to the site and construction began in 1982, the service officially opened in December 1985. To show visitors where the station was located from anywhere on the Expo grounds, the world's tallest freestanding flagpole, rising to 282 feet with a 944 square foot Canadian flag on top, was built. Since Expo, the SkyTrain has become the most important part of Vancouver's transit system, with the line extending six different times. Today, over 500,000 people ride the Skytrain each day, and the service still uses its original 1985 86 fleet of trains. And if the monorail and the Skytrain weren't enough, rides were also a big part of Expo 86. By far, the most popular ride was the Scream Machine. This roller coaster included two 360 degree loops and a corkscrew turn. An average of 11,500 people per day waited for hours to ride the roller coaster, and each day, an average of 11,500 people waited for hours just to ride this coaster. Now for those who visited Expo 86, if they were lucky, they may have seen the event's mascot, Expo Ernie. Rather than someone in a giant foam suit, Ernie was a remote-controlled robot that could interact with visitors. The idea for Ernie came about when Expo 86 Commissioner-General Patrick Reed saw a robot at an American airport and thought it would be a great mascot, Responsibility for its design and construction fell on Ken Larson, who built Ernie, operated him, and provided the voice. Larson described himself as a freelance actor from Florida, and he refused to have his picture taken because he felt Ernie should remain a robot in the minds of the people. Larson would leave the post of handling Ernie in 1985 when he moved back to Florida to work on acting and film production work. With Larson gone, Craig Wheeler, a 22-year-old acting student, took over operation from Ernie leading up to the big event ernie was a world traveler throughout 1982 he spent six months at the canada pavilion during the knoxville world's fair followed by visits to asia and europe to promote expo 86. he also toured through canada and the united states but not without hiccups one hiccup occurred in september 1984 when ernie stopped working at the seattle center to launch ticket sales in the united states in the incident, Ernie fell face down on the podium and had to be pulled off stage by Wheeler as the crowd watched. During Expo 86, Ernie became a where's Waldo for visitors as they tried to find him among the tens of thousands of people visiting the fair each day. To make things easier eventually, he wound up in a dedicated spot in the kids area underneath the Camby Street Bridge. And after Expo 86 finished, Ernie retired to a quiet life when he was purchased by Expo chairman and billionaire, Jimmy Patterson for $53,000 at a post-fair auction. Expo would officially close on October 13, 1986. Vancouver had welcomed over 22 million visitors, which was less than half of what Montreal welcomed in Expo 67, but that isn't as bad as it appears. The world had changed, and the importance of world's fairs fell between Expo 67 and Expo 86. Vancouver actually drew double the visitors the Knoxville Fair did in 1982, and three times what the Louisiana World's Fair did in 1984. Organizers of Expo 86 also hoped 13.7 million people would attend, and they far exceeded that expectation. Visitors spent $94 million on food, and ate 4.2 million hot dogs, and had enough cotton candy to fill up half of BC Place. And while the event cost $802 million, and brought in $491 million in revenue, meaning it had a $311 million deficit, it generated about $3.7 billion for the Canadian economy. And many parts featured in Expo 86 became permanent fixtures in communities across Canada. The world's largest hockey stick is now in Duncan, British Columbia, next to the local arena. The Inukshuk, which was on display at the Northwest Territories Pavilion, was relocated to English Bay Beach in 1988. also served as the inspiration for vancouver's winter olympics logo two decades later the folk life pavilion became folk life village on Gambriel island and now serves as a shopping center other pavilion structures were disassembled and reconstructed for industrial use across the lower mainland the log flume ride was shipped on 16 semi trucks and installed at upper clements park in nova scotia the canned pavilion is now a major convention center in vancouver and it's also where the cruise ships dock As for Highway 86, Wines would attempt to raise $1 million to have the 200 vehicles cast in solid metal to preserve them. Unfortunately, it was not able to raise the money and the disposal division of Expo 86 sold the vehicles for a total of $70,000. The entire event continues to be seen as a huge success for Vancouver and it made the city a destination with global recognition. It also directly led to Vancouver hosting the 2010 Winter Olympics. In fact, part of the original expo center was redeveloped to become part of the Olympic Village. However, all of this came at a price, a very high cost of living. And it led to the current affordability crisis that persists in Vancouver, where even the smallest house can sell for over $1 million. And you can trace its origin to when the world first took notice of Vancouver and high priced developers began to move in. Downtown Vancouver saw its population rise from 6,000 in the 1980s to over 43,000 by 2006. And due to the affordability issues, which began in the 1980s, some call Expo 86 the moment when Vancouver sold its soul. The legacy became the inspiration for the song "False Creek Change by Vancouver indie band, Said the Whale. The song goes, "False Creek changed in 86, the year Expo exploited her shore. It's been 22 years laying down bricks. There's no room for me here anymore. Now that's the end of the story and legacy of Expo 86. But there's one more thing you should know about a corporation's floating restaurant that still struggles to find a home. Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Levine? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft
0: Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI One of the most popular spots at Expo 86 was the McBarch, a floating McDonald's restaurant that cost $12 million to construct. It was one of five McDonald's restaurants at the fair, measuring in at 57 meters long, moored to the Expo grounds of Falls Creek and after briefly serving as a restaurant after the fair, it was soon left empty and sat anchored at Burrard Inlet, north of Burnaby, next to industrial barges and an oil refinery. Thus began its sad decline, as it spent the next three decades being sold from owner to owner, becoming more decrepit and rusted as time went on. But some life was left on that old McBarge, and in 2004, it was used as the lair of the Night Stalkers in Blade Trinity. There have been many plans to fix it, to turn it into anything from a restaurant to a homeless shelter, but nothing materialized. A petition to give the barge historic status could only muster 185 signatures. And then, in 2015, it was moved to Maple Ridge, and to this day it sits as a lonely and decaying relic of the last World's Fair to be held in North America. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Maclean's Canadian Encyclopedia, Urbanized, Vancouver Sun, Wikipedia, Whistler Museum, and City News. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio design and production by Rob Johnston. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian.